Right, seven words, seven acts, seven last words of Christ, seven acts or scenes and acts of the apostles, seven themes that resonate meaning, not just meaningfully, but transcendent meaning. A world that cannot hold, when we begin to see a world that cannot hold, all of the meaning that is possible for, for us as, as people, as human beings. When you think about these different themes of, of uh, freedom and love and hope and this morning justice, you begin to see that there is a transcendent meaning and power beyond the material world that cannot hold the, the meaning, the transcendent sense of meaning that God has for us, even in a broken world, even in this limited view that we have. You think of that goblet, that, that hit, that, that opera singer hits the note and it shatters. That's that's the world, that's the way that we, we see and experience the transcendent meaning. We know that it's there. We know that it's not quite there. We're in this already but not yet of God making all things new. And this morning we're talking about justice. And as soon as I, as soon as I say justice, a lot of people think that social justice, we think about the, this past year, we think about all the wrangling and I think people are burned out on hearing about justice. I understand why. Uh, it's just so much cursing of the darkness that we've been hearing. And I think that's what we're tired of. We're not tired of justice. We're not tired of order. We're not tired of things being put right. But we are tired of people just diagnosing without any prescriptions, right? My dad used to do that to me. He was a doctor. He'd come up and say, I'd say, Dad, this thing is, there's a problem with, and he'd say, Oh, you've got a Morton's neuroma. And, and then he'd walk away, and I'd think, is it fatal? You know, I mean, I, what's, what's happening here? I mean, diagnosing without any prescriptions. That's, that, aren't we burned out on that? Cursing the darkness without offering any light. Pointing out problems without signaling to us any solutions. And this morning, we're going to talk about justice in terms of the light. The light that just a community of faith, a koinonia, a fellowship of people brings just by being a church because they are a people of grace. When they approach the world, a broken world, they bring light. They don't just bring curses of what's wrong. They bring solutions. From the Word of God, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Hear God's Word this morning. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. The nightly news is a program where someone says good evening, and then they go on for the rest of the program to tell you why it's not. <laughs> That's what we've been experiencing for, you know, some, some many months. And I've, I've hit this, to, this topic of justice a number of times, and I was sort of approaching it with fear and trepidation, knowing what, uh, what I'd be thinking if I were sitting and listening to something on, oh, justice again, we're going to talk about the broken world and how we're supposed to be called to fix it. Well, never fear. Let's take a look at this. Let's, let's think back about just a week ago. We had students up here who were giving their testimony. What did we, what did we connect with? What did you connect with when you were listening to those students' testimony? I think what we connect with, when someone tells their story of grace, is somebody who is known and accepted. Not just known by God, right? Not just wondering, okay, you know, God knows me, I know that there's a God, I have a sense of faith, but accepted. And not just accepted without being known. Like, you know, it's, it's fine to accept me for who I, you think I am, but what if you know who I really am? Would you accept me? And I think what we see in people's testimony, when, when, they're, when they're saying something about the great grace of God in their life, when we, when we hear that put together, that they're known and accepted, something very powerful, life-giving about it, isn't it? Isn't it? That's our story, and that's the story that's being told here. So how does grace bring about justice then? How does... This kind of story of grace, of being accepted and known, how does that bring about justice out in the world? Well, let's look at how grace brings us together to solve problems. That's the whole sermon right there. It brings us together to solve problems. First, it brings us together. Grace makes us gracious. You ever think about that? If you're full of grace, you're graceful, you're gracious. Grace makes us gracious. But when you know that grace is costly, right? You've heard that grace is free, but it's not cheap, right? There is a cheap form of grace where you don't know the cost of giving you the grace. That's not really grace. Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He talks about cheap grace, but costly grace. When we know and connect the cost. To ourselves, that it costs what it cost God because of who we are, and yet He gave. Something powerful happens in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's take a look. Verse 32, it says, They had everything in common. I talked about the fellowship. The, the word here is konos, it's koinos or koinonia. Koinonia is a, a kind of a familiar word. If you're, uh, you know, if, if you look at New Testament uh, at all, you probably hear about this word koinonia or a fellowship. Sometimes people will name their fellowship koinonia. Heard that a number of times. They had something in common. The word means common. What did they have in common? Well, look at verse 34. It says, they had great grace. They had that in common. 
you know, this signals back to Deuteronomy 15.4, where it talks about the year of Jubilee. You know, there's an experience of freedom in grace, right? And in Deuteronomy 15.4, it talks about the freedom of the seventh year of Jubilee. And so there, uh, God is, is... pronouncing over the people of Israel, here's how you are a just people. Here's how you're an equitable people. Here is how you are a graceful people. This is how you do it. Every seventh year, all debts are forgiven. How would you like that? What would you think about that? You know, sometimes people would say, well, it's year six. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to loan anything to anybody because next year, you know. And it, it, it actually confronts that in that passage. It's saying... Here's how you operate because, and, and then it goes on, he says, because I'm going to give you an inheritance. And you, you hear this over and over in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, operate this way as a people. Be a community that, that comes together because I'm about to give you something. But in the New Testament, it's the opposite. It's already been given. And so we act out of the gift. But do you know the cost? Do you know the cost of the gift? It's free, but it wasn't cheap. The, se- the fourth word of Jesus, out of the seven last words of Jesus, sometimes is disturbing to people. But did you know that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually praying a psalm, Psalm 22. Listen to what he says and think of the cost the cost of being vanquished, the cost of being humbled unto death, even death on the cross, the cost of letting go of the grasp of eternity, the cost of God turning his back on Jesus because Jesus took on the cost of our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. It goes down, it says this. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Be not far from me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. They have divided their garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. It goes on and it continues to describe Good Friday. It's coming. Powerful to think that a couple thousand years before Jesus was on the cross, at least probably about 1,500. These kinds of prayers and this prayer, the specificity of it, 
was the lifeblood and the power, the central force, the motivating force of the people of Israel. Based on a promise, you see, now here's the thing, based on a promise of the cost that would be paid in the future. And now we as New Testament people, we're looking back on that cost. We're looking back on the fulfillment of the promise. Not just ceremonial uh, sacrifice, not just a, a, a big bonfire and a, and a barbecue, which it was the center of their life in the tabernacle age, but a fulfilled human justice, jubilee, letting us off the hook. But here, here's the key. When someone does something for you that you don't deserve, it, it, it feels good, right? It's kind of like, oh, good. I, I kind of, I'm glad that happened. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to pay the consequences, right? And sometimes we feel a little bad about it and we move on. But when you know the cost, when you know the cost, Here's the difference, and this is, what, this is what they're operating out of. This is why they had all things in common. And what I'm about to tell you is the reason why, the reason why justice is so important as an outward sign of inward grace. When we know the cost of grace, you can see the worth of a soul. When you know the cost of grace, you know the worth of a human soul. Before Christianity, there were no human rights. There was no universal sense that human beings all had dignity and worth. We were creating the image and nature of God. But here is where the whole idea of human worth and dignity and universal human rights breaks out, out of just a Deuteronomy 15 small kind of enclave practice, but begins to make its way around the world. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Really? I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with Thomas Jefferson. He was brilliant, but, uh, but he's borrowing on Judeo-Christian momentum when he said that. This is not a given. It, it's only been a given for a very short period of time. Christianity, Christianity brought universal human rights to bear upon all civilizations and continues to do so. It's kind of like this. If, if you come to my house and you break like some, a ceramic egg, right? Let's just say I've got a ceramic egg over the fireplace or something. You break it. And I say, well, you know, it's no big deal. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Whatever, whatever it, you know, the forgiveness is there. The grace is there. But there's still a cost, right? If I want to replace it, there's a cost. It cost me something to buy that. Now, imagine that it's a Fabergé egg, okay? Now, there are only 57 of these masterpieces in the world, right? And you break one of our Fabergé eggs, all right? Don't worry about this. If you come over, don't worry about breaking our Fabergé eggs. We got rid of all of them. But if you know that this is a masterpiece, and you know that you're forgiven, don't you know... Don't you get a little taste of how much you're loved, how much you're valued more than a thing, right? You see, this is the experience of costly grace that changed a bunch of rule followers 
And to people who weren't saying, oh, okay, I, I'm just supposed to do this because Deuteronomy 15.4 says that there should be no needy person among us. Among us. But out of an abundance, a wealth, a sense of worth, they considered to have all things in common. That when they see someone else's need, they see somebody who has worth and dignity that needs some kind of response. So it brings us together, you see? You see our common need? We're all beggars showing other beggars where to find bread, right? That's grace. That's the grace of the gospel. It's like we're beggars trying to show other beggars where to find bread. It brings us together. It gives us a common sense of identity, a common sense of worth, and a common basis or foundation of that worth. It's the grace of God, the costly grace of God. But it brings us together, not just for unity's sake, not just to bask in the glow of of having the truth and, uh, and letting other people just sort of die on the vine. It brings us together to solve problems. That means that, that if you have a problem, it's my problem. That means if there are problems out there in the world, it, it's our problem. That means if there are people who are living in squalor and we're driving past them, then that is our problem, not the government's problem. You know, I think we all have this mental checklist. It's like, you know, as taxes go up, we, we keep thinking, check, 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 check. Don't have to worry about that, 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 and that. Because I paid my taxes, and I'm done. Right? I mean, they're taking, what, every third dollar, so that's all. But the Christian, Christian community, with this nuclear power plant, in every human heart of the worth and dignity of human life that resonates. We see people in squalor and we say, it should not be. It should not be. If God is in the business of reordering all creation and he's renewed me, what's my responsibility? What is my response? So Deuteronomy 15.4 says, there shouldn't be a needy person among you. Here in verse... 35, it says, there was not a needy person among them. Do you hear that? Deuteronomy 15.4 says, there should not be a needy person among you. There should not, all right? Because you all should hold all things in common. Because someday I'm going to give you a big inheritance, so you should just hang on there and, and, and share. And then look at this, New Testament. I'm going to read it again. It doesn't say there should not be. It says, there was not. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who were owners of lands, they sold houses and they brought them. It doesn't mean, look, this is not communism, okay? A lot of times people say, well, you know, the, this supports a, 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 you know, a particular kind of approach to government administration to make everything utopic. No, th- th- if, if you think this is about communism, then you've totally missed the point, entirely missed it. I, I've heard people try to make that case out of this. And they totally missed the point. This is voluntary. And the reason it's so powerful is, why is it voluntary? Why are they doing that? It doesn't mean they don't have property. It just means they see opportunity. It doesn't mean they don't have pots and pans and they have a house and they have places to live and, that, and they have horses and they've got you know, wine presses and whatever else. That They just see that 
out of an abundance, there are opportunities in the world for them to demonstrate an outward sign of an inward grace. And you say, well, Tim, that's just for, among the church, right? They're just supposed to, I mean, they're, they're not taking on the problems of the world. Well, not so fast. Just two chapters later, you can see where, where there's a problem. In Acts chapter 6, famously, they reorganized the church in order to extend the reach of the church into the, the Greek communities whose widows were being neglected. And so as people were coming to Christ, they had to reorder themselves in order to, to continue to have integrity in what they're saying and what they're doing to make it match up. And so that's why Esau Macaulay in his book, his recent book, Esau Macaulay is a, is a, a, a black professor in, at Wheaton College. He's written a book called Reading While Black, and he's trying to say, look, this, you know, we've got people on the left, we've got people on the right, we're lobbing grenades, what does scripture really say that brings us together? He says, the inclusion of the Gentiles was not an innovation cooked up by the early church to increase market share. Did you follow me? The inclusion of the Gentiles. So these were Jews who were, who were coming to Christ, and then they, they were extending their reach into, uh, into the Greek uh, communities around them. And he says, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the Greeks, was not an innovation cooked up by the early church to increase their market share. It wasn't about increasing like their power. Like this is our movement and we want power and so we're going to we're just going to we're going to change the rules, we're going to bend rules so that we can just sort of get bigger and have more power. No, it wasn't that. It was always God's intention to create an international community for his own glory. Old Testament commands it. In the New Testament, you see people are desiring it. They're desiring it. It's not, if you do this, then you will be blessed. You see, in the Old Testament, it's, if you do this, a blessing is coming. In the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it says, the blessing came. It's yours. Now, what's your response? Gracious people, grace-filled people are gracious. You see? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He became like us, so we could become like him. But what does that mean? It means there's costly grace. He took on the cost of grace. It's not, oh, yeah, hey, you know what? What you did, what you are, what your condition is, no big deal. Hey, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Right? No one's perfect. I mean, that's what a lot of people think grace is. That God's just sort of deciding, you know, for these people, I'm just going to say, you know what? No one's perfect. It's all right. You get a pass. You get a get-out-of-jail-free card. No big deal. That's not grace. That's cheap grace. For you know the grace. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, may become rich. Okay, so now you understand. You see the contrast between the law and grace, right? You see the contrast between the Old and New Testament. You see that grace speaks something over your life. It speaks a word of worth and dignity. It speaks of universal human rights and worth, right? We, as Christians, as Christian communities, ought to be the incubators of this out of a sense of what we have received. 
out of the overflow, energized by opportunities to say, you know, I've experienced it in me like the students were talking about last week. Now, how can I demonstrate physically out there? Now, here's, here's let me just kind of go off on just a little rabbit trail for just a minute. A lot of times you think of, of the Greeks or you, you contrast the Jews and the Greeks in, in this day and age as sort of the heathen and people who are, you know, they're having big parties and they're, you know, just sort of debauchery is everywhere and sort of defined by hedonism. Well, you know, that picture is pretty accurate. And the reason is they, they followed Plato, a philosopher, Plato, who, who said anything that's material is bad. If there's anything that's good and spiritual, it's not material. It's called Gnosticism. And guess what? Gnosticism marks our age like nothing else. People, it, Christians talk this way all the time. They talk about just like the body is some kind of shell. It's no big deal. And your soul is somewhere in here. That, we, we started this series with the idea that you don't have a soul. You are a soul, right? What you do, what, 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 uh, what you do with your time, what you do with your talent, what you do with your treasure, all those things matter. They have spiritual implications. Every layer of us is part of of our soul. And so as a result, when the Greeks saw the Jewish Christians caring for the needs, the physical needs of their own widows, do you see how powerful that was? If you care for my child, I mean, you're my friend. I don't care what you've done to me, but you start caring for my family members? I mean, you know, you're a friend for life, right? Isn't that true? I and mean, then somebody starts caring for your family member. That's a friend for life. That, that's exactly what was happening, and that's just justice. Now, how do we do this? How do we do it? How do we, now that we've understood this, now we understand the difference between Old and New Testament. See, we did that in just a short period of time. That wasn't bad. Uh, now, now, how do we do it? I, I like this little uh, why, but why BH? You know, a lot of times I'm reading or I'll write, why BH? Yeah, okay, great point. But how? Yeah, okay, but how? Now, here's the yeah, but how part of this. Listen to this. Generosity makes justice an outward sign of costly grace. Isn't that what I've been saying the whole time? Generosity makes justice our outward opportunity and sign of costly grace. That's, that's, what, that's what you see in this passage. Verse 35. Verse 35. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. Now, what was happening there? They laid it at the apostles' That's a great image. They laid it at the apostles' feet. What are we doing with our World Mission Conference? We're laying it at the apostles' feet. What are we doing when, we're, when, when we give to the offering plate? We're laying it at the apostles' feet. You know what it is? It, two ways, two ways that, that we find an outward sign of our inward costly grace through generosity. Two ways that we're called to justice. Number one, number one, it's to see a common need in all humanity. You see the need of somebody who's, who has the weight and worth of being a person created in the image and nature of God, and they're living in squalor. That's a problem for us. We begin to see differently. You know, one of the things that I've noted is that when I make a mistake, like um, if, I, if I say something weird or, or off or just, I just kind of 
People love that. I don't know why. They just love it. And like, if I like tell them something that you know, I'm struggling with at home or like I'm trying to fix something, and they'll say, oh, I thought you had everything together. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, come over. And they're like, oh, that makes me feel so much better. You ever had anybody tell you that? Doesn't that isn't that sort of universal? Oh, you struggle with that too? That makes me feel so much better. That's why we laugh at people when they fall down. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, you too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I did that yesterday. That's terrible. And uh, I could really relate. Right? But see, that's a connection. That's a connection we're called to make. We're called to see the common weight and worth in humanity. That's, that's step one. And step two is to give in a smart way, smart giving. When we lay our treasures at the apostles' feet, what we're saying is, look, We've got people at this church that are on a team, international team, and a local team, and they're vetting these partners, and they're finding the best partners that we can find. And over the years, we're deepening those relationships. And we're not just giving something away because somebody's holding a, a piece of cardboard or something like that, and we don't really know if that's going, where that's going to go and if that's merciful or if that's enabling just a bad pattern for that person, a chronic situation. But when we give... When we lay it at the apostles' feet, what's happening is we are giving in a smart way. We know that, that the partners that we're supporting are doing things. These people, weren't, these people weren't just being naive. They were accountable. And so our partners are operating in such a way that holds people. As we're being merciful, they're also holding people accountable. In the way that we serve, in the way that we serve, we enable long-term development, and not just short-term relief. See, <laughs> that's a lot. Now, I just wrapped all that together. I mean, it's like Old Testament and New Testament and law and grace and, 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 and the difference between the promise coming, the promise behind you, and, and being able to be motivated by costly grace because when you see the cost, you see the worth of you, and then you begin to look around the world and you see the worth of the people around you and you say, opportunity, where's the opportunity for this costly, this costly sense of grace to get out? get out. Well, it's in the way that you treat somebody when they break something at your house. It's in the way that we respond when we see somebody around town living in a way that we would not want our child to live. Here's what Tolkien said, and then we're done. He said this, it's not our part to master all the tides of the world. I love the images here. It's not our part to master all the tides of the world. But to do what is in us for the soothing of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, Thomasville, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. I love that. Uprooting the evil in the fields that we know so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your justice came packaged with mercy. And your mercy, looking into the depth of the dark human heart, your mercy, the cost you paid for it, was equal to our need. Holy God, in these closing moments as we reflect on the fact that there was a cross and that the God who made us, the perfect God, became poor that we may be, become rich, Lord. 
It's more than a story. It's a universal principle. We can see it lived out. We can see it lived out in the way that when we forgive somebody and they know just how hard it was for us to forgive them, how much more it means to them. Lord, would you find us in those places where we're just simply not trusting the power of your unfailing love? 